Lord, we thank you for time to, to worship you and prepare our, our hearts to seek you in your word. God, I pray that you would speak to us powerfully, Lord, uh, so much in this text, um, yet so little time, but I pray that the time that we do have, Lord, you would just be glorified through it, that we would know you on a deeper level, uh, that though this is uh, really more geared towards your interaction with the Philistines, we can, we can make it applicable to our lives, Lord. So, so help us to do that. Pierce our hearts, change our minds, uh, change our lives. In your name, amen. All right. Uh, so if you recall, last two teachings, we were uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 4 and then 1 Samuel chapter 5. Uh, that two, what, now it was like a month ago, 1 Samuel chapter 4, uh, we discussed how Israel attempted to fight the Philistines through the form of religiosity, right? They put their hope, they put their faith, they put their confidence in the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, and though the Ark of the Covenant had represented God, the Ark of the Covenant wasn't God. So they were literally trying, trying to fight the enemy with religiosity, and they lost, right? So the Philistines, they took the Ark of the Covenant, and what did they do? They put it in their temple, specifically Dagon's temple, which was another god. We discussed him. He was believed to be the father of Baal, who you hear about often in the scriptures. But when they put God up against this other god, what happened? That other god was laid down on its face. Literally, Yahweh made Dagon worship him. Bow down before him. And then what, what happened? They put this other God back up. They put him together. They put him back on his feet. And then what happened? Then God got violent and he got destructive and he destroyed their God and his head fell off and body parts and all these different things. And instead of the Philistines recognize, recognizing the sovereignty and power of the one true God, Yahweh, they try to dismiss it. They make this whole thing like it was a holy thing. Like they won't walk around where Dagon broke his face on the ground. Where Yahweh broke. They make it like this. Oh, we can't tread on the ground uh, over there. They make it this holy thing. And then what do they do? They try to get rid of them. They keep passing the Ark of the Covenant off to different places. And now they, as they pass the Ark of the Covenant off to these different cities in uh, Philistine, uh, what happened was these people started uh, getting tumors. Okay, And there was a plague. uh, And then rats came. So now they're at the end of themselves. They've finally decided we'll see to give the Ark of the Covenant back to its rightful people in the Israelites. But we see here something about God that we might not um, take at first glance. See, God's not simply punishing the Philistines because they have the Ark of the Covenant. He's not destroying their God and bestowing all these plagues and different things on them because he just wants them to send the Ark back. No, he's trying to get their attention. He's trying to show them how powerful he is. He's trying to prove to them that he is the true God. See, he already proved that he has power over their gods, that their gods are nothing compared to the true God. And in this text, we're going to see he's literally going to go the extra mile to show that he's not just a God that is more powerful than other gods. He's a God that despite his power, he still responds in compassion 
to man. And he's going to respond to these Philistines in a very creative way because they set God up for something interesting. He has to basically perform a miracle to prove himself to them. It's, it's, it's really interesting what they do and how they set this all up. But we see God, he answers this miracle. He performs it. Why? As a testimony to them. He wants them to know who he truly is. He wants them to believe, not just know that he's powerful, but believe that he is the true God. The title of this teaching is A Testimony to the Unbeliever. A Testimony to the Unbeliever. God is doing just that. This is a testimony to these Philistines. Uh, They're the enemies of God's people, but they're also unbelievers. And he does this interesting thing. He's trying to bring them from a place of disbelief to a place of belief. So that's our primary focus because these are unbelievers, but we will absolutely connect this to our lives um, as believers. If you would with me, we'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 6. We'll go from verses 1 to 12. And then next time when I get back, we'll finish 6 and 7. Okay, I had too much in the beginning. I was like, I got to stop somewhere. So I did. 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 1. Now, the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. Think about this. It's not like they've had seven months of prosperity. Okay, they've had seven months of pain and suffering. They had plagues. They had the, the tumors, which is also translated as, as hemorrhoids. We don't know exactly what it was. There were rats, horrible things. We don't know why God did all this. Why, was, why he did the specific things. We know ultimately he was trying to get their attention. But for seven whole months, they resisted God. And because they resisted God, they brought unnecessary suffering into their lives. Point number one, the more we resist, the more we suffer. The more we resist, the more we suffer. When we resist God, his will for our lives, the directions that he gives us in our lives, the more we resist God's will, the more suffering, the more unnecessary suffering we bring about in our lives. See, if they would have recognized God in the beginning, we don't know what would have happened. I believe that the suffering would have stopped. If they would have done this for sure, sent the Ark of the Covenant back and recognized Yahweh as the God, that now they're in the clear. Now, now they're good and they're also saved, if you will, but they don't do that. They continue to resist and they bring seven months of absolute suffering into their lives. See, God wasn't just giving the Philistines a a hard time so that they would send the ark back. He wanted to bring them to a place of surrender. He wanted them to know who he truly was. He wouldn't have done all the things that he did if he just wanted them to get the ark back, including the last thing. They were going to give the ark back either way at that point. We'll discuss some of this in a little bit. He wanted to gain their attention. He wanted to gain a following, if you will, that these people would recognize who he is and surrender to him. See, the only way we win with God is through surrender. There's no winning through resistance. The only way we win is through that surrender, that absolute surrender. And when we finally surrender now, Now we have victory, okay? There's no victory apart from Christ. Fighting him will never win that battle. You remember Jacob, right? We talked about this when we went through Genesis. Jacob wrestled with God. 
And sometimes we think of that as a moment, as an instance. But Jacob had been wrestling with God his whole life, ever since he left home. What do I mean? Constantly, time and time again, Jacob was putting his trust in himself, and he wasn't putting his trust in the living God, which led him to a life of manipulation and deceit. He was constantly putting his faith in himself, till finally, God encountered him, he physically wrestled him and what happened jacob he walked away with a limp see those things didn't need to happen if jacob started off from a place of surrender now yes god worked all those things together for good he made jacob weak so jacob would learn how to depend on god but jacob he brought unnecessary suffering into his life why because he was wrestling with god for so long he wasn't surrendered to the will of god from the beginning See, the more we resist the call of God, the will of God, the gospel of God, the more suffering we invite into our lives. Me, before I got saved, I had seed after seed planted. My sister would always try to share this Jesus with me. And it wasn't for a decade that I finally got it. That decade was misery, okay? It was like the tumors and the rats and the plagues. It was like so bad, I almost wished that that's what happened to me. But for all those years, there was that resistance and I brought unnecessary suffering in my life because I resisted the gospel. But it's not just resisting the gospel, it's resisting God's will, right? You remember Jonah, he didn't want to go to Nineveh, he resisted God's calling on his life and what happened? A bunch of unnecessary suffering, you know, he didn't have to get eaten by the big fish. Like, I don't think we really think about that. That would be a horrible experience. Being inside a big, it can't smell good. That's gotta be miserable. You ever smelled dead fish? Okay. What do you think that big fish eats? Bunch of dead fish probably, right? So the inside of that big fish, it's gotta reek. It's gotta be hideous. It's gotta be horrible. So many other things. He brought this suffering upon his life and not only his life, we see that it affected others as well. See, surrendering, surrendering to God is in our own best interest. The Philistines, they suffered for seven months and still at the end, they still resisted God. Yes, they give the Ark of the Covenant back, but they don't surrender to God and recognize him as their God. First Samuel chapter six, <clears throat> verse two. <clears throat> and the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners saying, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it to its place. So they said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return it to him with a trespass offering. Then you will be healed and it will be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. So the priests, they realized that they offended Yahweh. Obviously, he destroyed their God. And, and now he's causing all these plagues to happen to the people of Philistine. So the priests come up with this creative way to kind of make up for it. OK, they're going to send them golden tumors and, 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 and golden rats, a very interesting, interesting peace offering. But it's a peace offering. Nevertheless, look at first Samuel chapter six. Verse four, then they said, what is the trespass offering which we shall return to him? They answered five golden tumors and five golden, golden rats, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. 
So they recognize that this plague was likely from God. So they know they have to make something right with the, with the God of Israel for this plague to, to not affect them anymore. Not only do they recognize, okay, it was likely God that made Dagon fall. They recognize it must have been Yahweh that, that, that made these plagues come upon us as well. So there's plenty of evidence, and we'll get to, into that in a moment, to convince these Philistines that God is the true God. But we see they give back. They want to give back these five golden tumors and these five golden rats. So again, uh, some translate the, the tumor word as, as hemorrhoids, uh, the rats. Some say that this was like a, a form of the bubonic plague. We, we don't really know. There's a lot of like, mm, uh, we're not really sure exactly what happened, whether it's tumors or hemorrhoids, why the rats came. If, if, if the plague was because of the rats or the rats came later, it seems like maybe the rats came later. But it's not really uh, that important. The point is that God had this plague on these people because he was trying to get their attention. First Samuel chapter six, verse five. Therefore, you shall make images of your tumors and images of your rats that ravage the land and you shall give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from you, from your gods and from your land. See, look what the priests do. They call their people, look, it says, you shall give glory to the God of Israel. The priests suggest that the Philistines, the enemies of God people, God's people, the unbelievers, that they glorify God. Why? Because God's people is not, people, it, it, they're not glorifying God. So God is actually going to gain glory from the enemies of God. See, if God doesn't get glory from his people, we'll find it from someone else. We discussed this on Sunday, right? Same application. If you remember, if you were here in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus speaking to the religious leaders, they questioned his authority. He gives them a couple parables and he says this. Specifically in Matthew chapter 21, verse 44, he says, verse 43, sorry. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. See, when God's people don't glorify his name, he'll find someone else who will. And this time he's glorified through the Philistines. At least they recognize his power. The point is we're called to, we've been chosen to, we were born to, to glorify God. And what does that mean? It, it really means when you look at the Hebrew, it means to uh, give reverence to or, or honor. If you look at it specifically in Exodus chapter 33 and 34, uh, I talk about this one often because I think it's so cool. Uh, but when God proclaims, uh, when he's asked to show his glory, he proclaims his name, which is his character. Follow me here. So for us to glorify God, yes, it's to revere him. Yes, it's to honor him. But ultimately, it's to portray his character. That's how we glorify the Father. We mimic Him. We imitate Him. See, the people here, the people of God, the Israelites, they weren't doing that. So God had to glorify Himself. The priests recognized that. Then it says, verse 5, that last part, it says, uh, and you shall give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from you, from your gods, and from your land. See, 
they weren't concerned about accepting this God. They were concerned about getting rid of him. Right. They, they weren't interested in having a relationship with God, despite all the evidence. See, God had given them plenty of evidence. They know they almost are completely confident. We'll see some doubt later that that God was behind this, that Yahweh was behind all these things. That's why they're ultimately going to test God in this passage. But they don't accept God. They don't accept them. They just try to get rid of them. See, when you look at lack of faith. When people lack faith, specifically an unbeliever, it's not about the lack of evidence. It's about the the condition of the heart. Okay, point number two, lack of faith is a heart issue. Lack of faith is a heart issue. We're going to sit on this one for a while. It's so sad, but so true. See, God literally showed up in in a difficult way, in a harsh way, if you will, uh, to the Philistines. But nevertheless, he gave them enough evidence to recognize that, that he was sovereign and that he was in control. And despite all this evidence, they don't surrender to him. They don't pursue him. They don't seek relationship with him. See, people that lack faith throughout this world, it is not because of lack of evidence. It's not because of lack of, a lack of evidence. In fact, the Bible tells us that in Romans chapter 1, in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, amongst other places, this is just one example. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The truth about what? Because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. See, God made him known to to all creation. When, When you look at creation, creation alone is evidence of an intelligent designer. And God even went, even went the extra mile with the Philistines. He made himself known to them. But see, so many people, specifically atheists, if you will, their lack of faith, it's not about the lack of evidence. When you look at creation, when you look at creation, it's mathematically impossible that it happened by chance. Okay, let me read you a couple things here. Okay. Dr. Harold Morowitz, okay, he's a professor of molecular chemistry at Yale University. Big deal, right? Sounds like it. Has concluded that the odds of life creating itself by chance are 1 in 10, followed by 1 billion zeros, okay? That's 1 times 10 to the billionth power. Mathematicians across the board, they say this, 1 times 10 to the 80th power, anything greater than that is mathematically impossible. He's saying the chances of, of creation just coming from chance, one times 10 to the 10 billionth power. I'll read you something else. Edward Conklin, okay, another biologist here, he stated the probability of life originating from accident or chance is comparable to the probability of an unabridged dictionary, okay, resulting from an explosion in a print shop. In other words, the universe origi- originating by chance has no chance. Literally, okay, if you had an explosion at a print shop, how many times would that have to happen for a dictionary, a perfectly in order dictionary? It's ridiculous. 
Like, no, that doesn't happen. It's literally mathematically impossible. So there were these two guys in 1953. Their names were Francis Crick and James Watson. Okay, They discovered something that, that really shaped science in many ways from that point forward. They, they discovered uh, the double helix, the, the, D, they, the DNA of a human being. And they discovered how complex it was. These two guys, one's an atheist, one's agnostic. Neither one of them believe in God. But when they saw the complexity of a DNA strand, this is what they said. They said, the chances of this much information evolving is this ratio. 1 times 10 to the 600th power, okay, over 20 billion years. It would be that chance in 20 billion years. Okay, you know what scientists say today? How, how old the earth is? They say it's 14 billion years. So right there, never going to happen. Again, 1 times 10 to the 80th power, mathematically impossible. 1 times 10 to the 600th power? Come on. That's where they developed this uh, theory called directed panspermia, okay? This is what it means. That because DNA is so complex that aliens must have planted some form of evolved life on this earth. Not God. Aliens planted some form of evolved life, okay? So, so it happened more rapidly. This is crazy. So the most famous atheist right now is who? Yeah, right. Richard Richard Hawkins, right? So look at what. Well, that's another one. Um, first name was, yeah, Stephen Hawking. Yeah, Richard Dawkins. Okay, Richard Dawkins. Yeah, that's close, comparable. Okay, he has this interview with Ben Stein. I encourage you to I encourage you to watch this interview. Ben Stein. He believes in God. I don't believe he's a Christian, but he believes in God. So Ben Stein is talking to him about these different things and he basically tries to help understand why he doesn't believe there's even a chance of an intelligent designer. And, and, and Richard Dawkins says this in the interview. He said, you might find a signature of an intelligent designer, but says that it was more likely aliens than God. So the atheist that says there's no chance there can be God, Ben Stein just proved to him that he's not technically an atheist. He just said there's a chance of an intelligent designer. But he won't say it's God. He'll say that it was the directed panspermia thing, that the aliens did it. Like, really? Like, how much more evidence is there of God than aliens, okay? Like, come on. See... When you look at the historical evidence uh, about creation, when you look at the historical evidence supporting the truth of the Gospels, uh, the most supported historical documents in the world are the Gospels. When you look at all these different things, all these different forms of evidence, you can't say that a lack of faith is due to a lack of evidence. No, no, no. It's a heart issue. It's a heart issue. And see... When you look at many of these atheists or uh, many of these famous atheists throughout history, when you look at them, they've gone through serious suffering in their life. Now, I'm going to communicate to you something pretty fascinating. I, I think it's fascinating anyways. When you look at some of these guys that walk through suffering, we see suffering really shape their worldview. Okay, Charles, Charles Darwin, right? Charles Darwin, evolution. Theory of evolution came up with it, Okay. In college, he was aiming to become a clergyman, okay? Listen to this. He studied Anglican theology at Cambridge, okay? So he was studying 
This is Charles Darwin, the guy that came up with evolution. Okay, He was studying to become a pastor, to serve in the church, if you will. His mom died when he was eight. So he questioned his faith for many years. Then his daughter died when she was nine. Okay, let me give you a quote from Charles Darwin. This is what he says. I believe that that his daughter dying was the icing on the cake. Because this is why he says he doesn't believe in God. He says, I am bewildered after he wrote this book. I had no intention to write atheistically, but I own that I cannot see as plainly as others do, as I should wish to do, evidence of design on all sides of us. There seems to me too much misery in the world. That's his reason. The suffering that happened to him, that's why he doesn't believe in God. Another one, Frederick Nietzsche, you know him, famous German philosopher, coined the phrase, God's dead. Okay, this guy, listen to him, same thing. His dad was a pastor. His dad was a Lutheran pastor. His younger brother died at the age of two. His father died when Frederick was five years old. Okay, he would later uh, suffer from a mental illness and he would he would die at the age of 55. See, he was studying to be a pastor and then around 19 or 20, he walked away from the faith. Okay, and he went through a lot. And he doesn't say, this is why I don't believe that there's a God. But we see he went through some suffering and it appears that that suffering really shaped his worldview. God is dead. See, when you look at the world today, it's not about a lack of evidence. These atheists that don't believe there's a, there's a God, it, it, it comes down to the issue of the heart. See, it's the human heart misunderstanding God's heart about suffering. Like Jesus came to solve the problem of suffering. It's not that he's not concerned about the suffering in the world. He's deeply concerned and often he intervenes, not every time. And we can't get too far into that for time's sake. But we see that the unbeliever, it's not about a a, a lack of evidence. It's about the heart not being able to understand God's heart. See, the Philistines, they didn't accept God, but it wasn't because of a lack of evidence. It was an issue of the heart. In fact, in this next verse, the priests are going to warn them of having a hardness of heart. Look what happens. First Samuel chapter six, verse six. Why then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened? Uh, sorry. Why then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts when he did mighty things among them and they did not let the people go that they might depart? So they heard the stories of Exodus, okay? And now we see some similar things are happening, okay? Let my people go versus let my heart go. Okay, a little different. So he bestows some plagues on them. He's trying to get their attention. It's not just so to let the ark go. He wants to get their attention. God desires that all men will be saved, including the Philistines in this text. So we see the priest warn them of a hardness of heart. Why? Because they had They'd harden their heads. See, they'd harden their heads to the truth. And when we harden our heads to the truth, our heart is sure to follow. Point number three, hard heads lead to hard hearts. Hard heads lead to hard hearts. See, the reason, one of the primary reasons that they kept this ark around for seven months is because they didn't want to admit defeat. Even though they beat the Israelites, they didn't beat their God. They didn't want to accept this truth. They didn't want to see the evidence for what it was. <clears throat> Sorry, just got a distracting text message 
there's got to be a way to turn text messages off on this thing. Um, so they didn't want to see the truth uh, for what it was. They had hardened their hearts to the truth about God. See, they've already hardened their heads. So the priests warned them their hearts are sure to follow. They're going to harden their hearts as well. You see throughout Scripture and even in our lives, when we harden our heads to the truth about God, meaning we're stubborn, we want to accept our own truth and not the truth that's been revealed to us through the Scriptures and through God in our lives. When we accept our truth as opposed to His truth, that leads us to a place of stubbornness, hard-headedness, if you will, which leads to hard-heartedness. I'll show you real quick in Acts chapter 7. Uh, this is where Stephen was stoned. But before he was stoned, he communicates, uh, he preaches this profound, uh, profound message. Very, very powerful. And at the end of it, uh, he says this. He's speaking to the religious leaders. And he says this in Acts chapter 7, verse 51. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears... You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Look what he says. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. That's brutal, but it's true. Why? Because they, they, the, the, the words that the prophets in the past and the apostles in the present preached to them, it fell on deaf ears. They had hard heads. They didn't want to accept the truth about Jesus Christ. It wasn't who they were accepting. And because they didn't accept the truth with their minds, they couldn't accept the truth with their heart. You uncircumcised in heart. Because your heads won't receive this thing, your heart surely won't receive this thing see the philistines it was tough for them to admit defeat they didn't want to accept this they ultimately do but their hearts are still hard because they don't accept the lord for us though we may be believers this still applies see if we want our hearts to change then sometimes we have to change our minds We have to change our perspective. See, God will change your heart, but he won't change your mind. He'll do things in your life to help you try to change your mind, but he's not going to force thoughts on you, okay? We have to truly change our mind, meaning be transformed by the renewing of our mind, change our focus, change our perspective, and then you know what? Our hearts are sure to follow. If we truly want our hearts to change, yes, God will do that, but he'll only do it if we choose to change our minds. Change what we're thinking about. Change what we're meditating on. And when we change our minds, the things that we're thinking about, now we're giving God an opportunity to change our hearts. He won't force us to think a certain way. He'll help us think a certain way. If we want to think a better way, think a different way. And when we choose to think that different way, now the heart starts changing. See, the Philistines, they had hardened their heads, which led to them hardening their hearts. Uh, The priest warned them, but nevertheless, they don't accept uh, Yahweh as their God, as their Lord. First Samuel chapter six. Verse seven. Now, therefore, make a new cart Take two milk cows, which have never been yoked, and hitch the cows to the cart, and take their calves home away from them. 
Then take the ark of the Lord and set it on the cart and put the articles of gold, which you are returning to him as a trespass offering in a chest by its side. Then send it away and let it go and watch if it goes up the road to its own territory to Beth Shemesh. Then he has done us this great evil. But if not, then we shall know that it was not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by chance. So they come up with this idea. They devise this plan to ultimately test God. See, there is still an element of doubt. See, they're trying to do this last thing to prove that it was actually the God of Israel that did all the things. Despite all the evidence, they need like one more little bit of icing on the cake just to solidify this in their mind. If he does this crazy miracle, and we're going to look at this, this is a, this is a wild miracle. This is impossible that it would, that it would happen by chance. Had God not guided, had he not directed this whole thing. So basically what they do, they take two milk cows that have never been yoked, meaning they've never carried, they haven't been trained to carry anything. They've never experienced one cow being yoked up next to the other. It's just like uh, you grab two cows that are wandering around at a farm that have never done this. They haven't been trained. Okay, so naturally they're not going to know how to do it. So something miraculous has to happen just for even the cows to coordinate and go the same direction and not just stand there because they're frustrated with the other cow not going in the direction that they want to. And they give them this specific direction that they must go to this place called Beth Beth Shemesh. So not only that, these milk cows, they've never been trained together. It says, look what it says here in verse seven. The, the last part of the last sentence, it says, and take their calves home away from them. Okay, so they have calves and they take the calves home back to one of the cities in Philistine and, and they go to send them on their way. Naturally, these mothers would want to do what? Go back to their calves to feed their cows, right? They, they want to take care of their little baby calves. They're setting God up for failure. That's what they're trying to do. So God has to do something uh, extraordinary to make this happen. They're trying to make this completely impossible to happen by chance. So it says that they take the ark and they set it on a cart, okay? Um, See, the ark was supposed to be transported a specific way, and we'll get into that uh, a little bit um, in in like a year from now in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Um, but we see that the ark, it wasn't supposed to be touched. And the only way it was supposed to be moved was first by Levites. And they were supposed to use these poles to move it. No one was supposed to touch, touch the ark of the covenant. But we see here, these Philistines, they, they do, they touch the ark of the covenant, but God doesn't judge them. Why? Well, he's probably being gracious and compassionate because he knows they don't know the law. See, we're going to see something different happen to the Israelites at the end of this chapter. We'll get into it next time. Uh, but it says that they put the art, the, they put the articles in a chest by the side. So they likely touched the ark to put it on this cart, but it doesn't appear that they looked into the ark. They put the chest with the golden tumors, uh, and the golden rats in a chest by it. They knew enough not to look in the ark. They were probably curious about what was in it, but they knew enough not to open it. See, their curiosity didn't lead them to sin in that sense. But we'll see Israel later in this chapter, their curiosity does lead them to sin. And they, knowing they're not supposed to, open the Ark of the Covenant and 70 people die. Um, We'll get into the numbers and all that later. Uh, There's controversy over that. We'll talk about it next week. Anyways, so look what they say. So if God does it this way, then we'll know that this great evil has been from God. But look at the last sentence in verse 9. But if not... 
Then we shall, we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by chance. Okay. Let's be real for a second. All these things just happened to them. Okay, their God fell down twice. He wrecked their God two times. They have the plague. They have the rats. They have the tumors. They have the potentially hemorrhoids. They have all these things happen to them. And they're still trying to chalk this up as chance. Okay, let me just be clear. Chance has no power. Okay, chance doesn't make anything happen. Okay, chance is a way to describe probabilities, but it possesses no power at all. For example, uh, if you look at, at a coin, right, heads or tails to go to flip a coin, the chances that it will land on heads is what? 50-50. That's the chances. But the chance doesn't make the thing turn from heads to tails. No, it's the person that flips the coin, right? The velocity by which they flip the coin. If there's different, you know, if there's some wind in the air, depending on what surface that coin uh, uh, lands on, whether it's hard or soft, will affect the way it flips, right? But chance doesn't do anything. It has no power, It doesn't have power. It's simply a word that's used to describe probabilities. But we use this word chance and and we chalk it up as like the world was created by chance. Chance has no power. Chance is just a way to describe probabilities. It's the person flipping the coin, the velocity, uh, the way that it hits the ground and the surface that it lays on. See, nothing happens by chance. When things happen, it's either because God orchestrated it or God allowed it. Okay, two different things there. God orchestrating it versus God allow it. Not everything that happened is like God's perfect will. You got God's perfect will and you have God's permissible will. It wasn't God's perfect will that Adam and Eve would eat the fruit in the garden, right? That he allowed it to happen, but he didn't make them do that. Okay, so because God gives free will, you have God's perfect will. And you have God's permissible will. When we focus too much, there's a balance here. When we focus too much on the fact that God orchestrated every single detail, then what? We over-spiritualize everything. That my shoe got untied for this specific purpose. I was supposed to stop to speak to the, like we do these things and it's like, you'll go mad. You'll go absolutely mad. There are certain things. Yes, God is orchestrating those things and he's prepared good works for us to walk in since the foundations of the earth. But some things, some things just happen because God let them happen. Okay, it's hard to know the difference sometimes, but the truth is both of those things happen regardless. Nothing happens by chance. Okay, things happen because of God uh, generally. First Samuel chapter six, verse 10. They think, oh, maybe this all happened by chance. First Samuel chapter six, verse 10. Then the men did so. They took two milk cows and hitched them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they set the ark of the Lord on the cart and the chest with the gold rats and the images of their tumors. Then the cows headed straight for the road to Beth Shemesh and went along the highway, lowing as they went and did not turn aside to the right hand or the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them to the border of Beth Shemesh. So despite the unlikelihood of this happening, it, it happens. Exact, they, go, they don't even turn to the left or the right. They go straight. These cows aren't worried about their calves. They, they're walking like they've been trained to do this for years. They do exactly the miracle that, uh, that the Philistines were, I don't know if they were hoping for it, but that, that they tested God with. See, God didn't have to show up in the way that he did, but he did. Why? He could have had them going zigzags. He could have done something to throw it off, throw them off. But but he was doing this as a testimony to the Philistines. He he wanted them to know. 
But see, the Philistines, they, they don't accept all this evidence and allow it to lead them to a place to accept the truth about God. Wow. This God is that I want to know this God. I want to seek this God. I want relationship with God. No, 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 no. They're just relieved that the pain's over. They're just looking at those cows walk away and they're just excited that, hey, you know what? No more suffering. No more plagues. It doesn't matter if we know the God of creation. We don't we don't have to suffer anymore. See, God gave them so much evidence uh, leading them to accept the truth about uh, who he is, but they weren't responding to the truth about God. They were responding to, to their relief. We see no evidence that the Philistines ended up accepting God after this, which means they likely didn't. Maybe some did, but we don't know for sure. But we, you see, um, they weren't responding to the truth that God revealed. They were responding to the relief that they experienced. Point number four, <clears throat> respond to his truth, not your relief. Respond to his truth, <clears throat> not your relief. See, they, again, didn't respond to the truth about God. They were simply grateful that the pain, the suffering was departing from them instead of allowing this pain and suffering to grab their attention so that they might recognize not only is God powerful, but he is the God and he wants relationship with them. Instead of them recognizing that, they're just focused on focused on the relief. But see, this isn't just for the Philistines. This is for all of us. How many times have you walked through a really difficult season in your life, a trial, a hardship, a loss, whatever it may be, and you're just focused on the relief that comes. And eventually, most of the time, it ends up coming, that relief comes. But you don't learn a truth about God. Or maybe you learned a truth, but you don't even acknowledge it. You don't accept it. You don't really allow it to change you. Why? Because you got the relief. I'm relieved now. Forget the truth I just learned. I'm relieved. What a waste of a trial if we walk through it and don't get anything out of it. See, he was trying to allow them to walk through this pain and suffering to get their attention that they would recognize the truth about God, but, but they didn't. They walked through all of this for seven months for nothing. All they did was get rid of their pain and suffering. But God didn't want them to just suffer and have pain. He was trying again to get their attention that they might know the truth of who he is. So we see... These cows, they headed straight down the road to Beth Shemesh. Now, we're going to see later in this chapter, the Israelites see this thing coming and, and they receive it and they offer sacrifices and offerings and all these different things. But the crazy thing about it, as miraculous as it may have been, the Israelites did nothing to get the ark back. Okay, It was all God. And this is a huge message for, for them and not just them, for all of us see God didn't need Israel to fulfill his plan. God, he doesn't need man to fulfill his plan. And that's the fifth point. God doesn't need man to fulfill his plan. They didn't do anything. He did all of it. Now, that doesn't mean that God won't use us. He will use us and he wants to use us, but he doesn't need us. He doesn't need us. See, this is something, an area, a truth that, that, that there's a fine line in because you can take it and say, well, God doesn't need man to fulfill his plan. He's going to fulfill it on his own. Oh, and so I'm not going to be a part of God's plan. No, no, that's disobedience because God calls us to be a part of his plan. But it's a fascinating truth that you learn, that I've learned, that he doesn't need us to fulfill his plan. Uh, so I can't give you all the details, but there was a time when I was a student at Patmos and basically, in other words, 
I was unable to do anything, literally anything, for eight days. Okay, I won't get into it, but I could not do anything, and it crushed me. It was so it was so hard. Uh, but I remember, uh, I remember watching the body of Christ and the small body of Christ, the students, the staff, the interns, uh, them operating so well and and them doing what god's called them to do and though i was a leader in that group you know what god didn't need me he didn't but this is what he spoke to me during that time and it's resonated with me ever since god doesn't need me but he wants me he doesn't need me but he wants me which is huge god's going to fulfill his plan regardless but he wants us he invites us to come and be a part of that plan see god on his own with his own strength with his own power he brought the ark of the covenant back he still wants israel to be a part of his plan but the truth is he's going to be all right without him (laughs) they don't need to protect the ark god will protect the ark see God doesn't need us, but he wants us. He desperately wants us to be a part of it. He invites us to be a part of it. He calls us to be a part of it. Even when you look at preaching the gospel, right? The Great Commission, go preach the gospel, make disciples. We see at the end in Revelation chapter 14, if the church failed in preaching the gospel, there's going to be an angel that flies around the entire world preaching the gospel. It's like either way, God's going to make sure that that happens, that everyone will hear the gospel. So it's this fascinating thing uh, that that God does, but he definitely does want to use us, even though he doesn't need us. See, in closing, God, he'd given the Philistines so much evidence, so much evidence about who he was. Yet they didn't accept it. They didn't accept the truth. Why? Again, it wasn't because of a lack of evidence. It was a a heart issue. They had hardened their hearts. They didn't want that relationship. They were good where they're at, where they were at. They wanted to continue uh, in the same lifestyles they had, worshiping the same gods that they had. See, the unbeliever can't use the excuse that there's not enough evidence about God, but they will. And because they will, just as God did this miracle to, 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 again, the little icing on the cake to prove himself, look, I'm a God of miracles. You're going to test me and I'm going to pass this test to, 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 to testify of who he is, how great he is, what he's capable of. See, though the unbeliever might use the excuse of uh, that's a lack of evidence, just as God had a testimony for the Philistines, we have, we have a testimony for the unbeliever. What do I mean? See, they might be, you might run into someone that's, that's struggling. Eh, is God real? Is he not real? Or, or even believe full on like an atheist that he isn't real at all. But you never know what evidence might just push him over the edge. Meaning your testimony, just as God has a testimony for the Philistines, your testimony could be the very thing that pushes the unbeliever over the edge that they might accept Christ. Now, God's word's going to go forth no matter what. Uh, he, he doesn't need us, but he wants us. And one of the things that he calls us to is share the gospel, is preach the gospel. When's the last time you shared your testimony with an unbeliever? When's the last time you said, this is what God did in my life? When's the last time it happened? That could be the very thing, that little piece of evidence that pushes them over the edge. And you could have been saved since you came from the womb. Okay, that's not biblical. But I'm saying since you were a kid, okay? 
Or you could have accepted Christ in the last year. Either way, testimonies are so powerful. And just as God had a testimony of how miraculous He is, we have a testimony too of how miraculous God is. And that testimony is so much more powerful than we give it credit for. See, maybe you get a chance this week. I know those are going on a mission trip. They're going to. And I got to hear some awesome testimonies uh, a couple days ago on, on Sunday. And it's going to be those things, those testimonies combined with the word that we're able to proclaim with confidence. God is all powerful and he's a God of miracles. He's, he's a God of redemption. He's a God of, of forgiveness and love and grace and changing and transforming lives time and time again. But if an unbeliever never hears that, if they're never aware of the miraculous works of God, they may not believe. They might use the excuse unjustly, but nevertheless, Oh, there's not enough evidence. I, I can't see it. All these other people say all these different things. But, but you're the evidence. There's evidence sitting right in this room. And testimony after testimony of things that God has done in your life. And again, that's the testimony to the unbeliever. Though we might not be able to do a miracle like God did, we can tell about other miracles that God has done uh, in our lives. And again, that might be the very thing that pushes them over the edge, that turns an unbeliever to a believer. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for just how like cool and awesome you are. It's so crazy just to think uh, what you did in this text to prove yourself. You didn't have to do it, but you did it. Um, and I believe you did it in love, love for the Philistines to, to get their attention one last time on the way out. You were truly willing to go the extra mile, literally, to, to prove powerful but but you respond to man you're you're a god that wants relationship as they put you to the test you you passed it and it's and it's so cool uh to see that god i pray that you would just give us the faith the boldness the the confidence uh to to share uh in that testimony as you as had a testimony for the philistines that uh we would be willing and open to to share our testimony uh with unbelievers recognizing that that could be uh the very evidence that they're looking for a, a transformed life uh, uh stories of of how you still do miracles today and uh, the greatest ones being the the transformation of the human heart god so i pray that you would go before us this week Lord, that you would uh, give us that boldness, give us that confidence that we would know uh, without a shadow of a doubt who you are and what you want from us. In your name, amen.